You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 47, part 10 of the Gallipoli series. Hope all of you are doing great. Can you believe we're already in June for 2022? I, I swear this year is going by way too quick. I'm excited for this episode. The Dardanelles campaign is at a crucial part in history. Do they stay or do they go? I could have ended the Gallipoli series if I rolled the remaining of what I want to talk about into one episode, but I don't like rushing things. So I'm going to have one more episode after this. Truth is, I could make several more. There's much to talk about, but it eventually has to come to an end. So there's still a lot to cover. I'm going to recap the last episode, then discuss what's next for the British and French at the Dardanelles, as well as throwing in my own opinions, of course. But before I get into this... Let me give a shout out to listener Jeff D. from Australia. Jeff sent me photos of the Billy Singh Memorial in Claremont, Australia. It looks really cool. It's Billy from the torso up in a sniper dugout half encircled by sandbags. The pictures are on my Instagram and Facebook page. Really, really cool. Thank you again, Jeff. Cheers, mate. So what have I been up to since the last episode? Well, I think I told you guys I was babysitting my shoulder after I went back to jujitsu. It's feeling better. I actually got COVID a second time, but you know what? It actually wasn't that bad. It was more just like a, a bad head cold, but I didn't want to go back to jujitsu while testing positive. So that actually gave me a, a good, a, maybe about a week or, or so to rest my shoulder. Another thing I did also, which was recommended by a friend is I tried cryotherapy. That's basically you walk into this chamber, this box, they drop the temperature down to about a negative 190 degrees Fahrenheit, and you sit in there for anywhere from two to three minutes. I sat in there for two minutes and 45 seconds. Now, I'm not going to say it healed my shoulder, but there was other parts of my body that are aching since I've been back at jiu-jitsu. Look, I'm out of shape. I'm old. I have previous injuries from the military, from sports, from me being a jackass as a kid. My body hurts. And I could honestly say after I walked out of there, I felt better. Um, and I look, there's a lot of people out there that wake up, they're sore, their bones crack, you know, their neck cracks. I'm not a doctor. I ain't no physical therapist. This is a disclaimer. I'm not telling you what to do. You should always consult a professional before doing something. Don't listen to me. I'm a jackass. But I do recommend it if you're doing if you're feeling some pain. And I'm just going to read a short little thing that says, "What does cryo? How does cryotherapy work?" The short, extreme cooling of the skin stresses the nervous system, causing a repair response, which causes a release of endorphins throughout your body to protect and repair. As the skin rewarms, the brain releases new blood flow that carry high levels of nutrients, oxygen, and chemicals. These can be great for a block of pain signals, mood and energy boost, and anti-inflammation. It takes two to three minutes of a whole body cryotherapy session to get all these benefits. 
So you walk into this cooler. It's just a, it's a big cooler box. There's, I know some of them go from the neck down, but this is a box you get to do. <sighs> when I first walked in, I couldn't breathe. So I walked out. I'm like, hey, I can't hold my breath for three, three minutes. What do you want me to do? He said, so the guy said, oh, I forgot to tell you, you've got to wear a mask. So I went back in there, did it. But when, after I was done, I immediately felt this rush of energy. You do feel it. And I think over the next 24 hours, just my knees, my elbows, I, I actually was feeling really good. I normally don't promote stuff like this, but look, there's people, again, I know they're hurting. You're getting older. Things hurt. And uh, this might be well worth looking into. Again, it didn't heal my shoulder. My shoulder is feeling better, but I think that's just me taking time off. So, oh, and my granddaughter was born since the last episode. What I'm so love with this little girl. She's such a bundle of joy. She's a little just chubby little face pumpkin. So happy. That's been my life since the last episode. All right. Let me tell you what I'm drinking for this episode. Jeff, I actually did go look for that Australian beer. Nobody sells it in the United States. I, I don't think you can get it. Um, it looks like it's a craft brewery from Australia. Uh, unfortunately, I'm sorry, mate. I looked. I just couldn't find it. So this time I'm drinking a Negra Modelo Cerveza. And you know what? It's getting hot out here in California now. I got the fan on, which if you guys hear, that means I'm not doing my job editing. But I just felt like an ice cold beer. And I just have a funny feeling that thing's going to go down nice. Okay. Let me do some recapping from the last episode. I spoke about Sir Ian Hamilton wiring a message to Lord Kitchener on the 17th of August, admitting they'd been defeated up to this point. He did this in the most political fashion you'd imagine, admitting they'd failed without taking the blame. The newly formed Ninth Corps would be completely restructured. Senior generals were relieved from their positions and replaced by so-called more competent generals. Hamilton told Kitchener that if he didn't receive more reserves soon, with the majority needing to be seasoned reserves, not newly formed, then the overall mission would fail. He also warned about winter approaching. It was an impossible ask from Hamilton, being that the Allies on the Western Front were about to begin an autumn offensive. On the last episode, I'm pretty sure I said spring, but this new offensive will be starting in September, so it's a fall-autumn offensive. My error on that one. They couldn't take troops away from the Western Front. That was out of the question at this point. The British had a commitment to helping the French. Hamilton would only get a small portion of reserves, not enough for his so-called plan number to win. General Stopford was replaced by General Julian Bing for the Ninth Corps. However, it would take Bing time to travel, so Major General Beauvoir de Lille took temporary command. DeLille immediately threw the men into another attack on the 21st of August, aiming to take Skimmer and W. Hills along with Hill 60 by the Anzacs. After hard fighting and many lives lost, on August 27th, the Turks still held the majority of the ground, including the high ground. 
and they still had plenty of reserves ready to go. The British were completely beaten in numbers by this point. DeLille, still with hopes, scooped up scattered and battered units that had already suffered major losses. He didn't consolidate them, but launched them into multiple attacks around the same area. He ran the same game plays that had previously failed, and this time he's running them with units that are really, they're really hanging on by a string. They're physically beaten, morally defeated. They lost a lot of their men and were being told to do the impossible. The Turks had enfilading machine gun and artillery positions spread out everywhere at this point, and they absolutely decimated the British who attacked the hills. I've said it on previous episodes, and I'll say it on future episodes. The men had become pawns to a political game at Gallipoli. The attacks that kicked off on the 21st is another great example of this. They were told to do the impossible. The higher-ups took no regard to the lives already lost and those that were about to be lost. They just keep throwing wave after wave and watch the slaughter from afar. It's not about gumption from the soldiers, because the soldiers are the brave ones, and gumption they indeed had. It's about the gumption from the higher command, the ability to reach down and do the right thing for the men. Somebody needs to show some gumption for the men remaining. And this brings us into the heart of this episode. What happens now? It's important to remember that the Dardanelles campaign was set in four stages and the landings that began on the 25th with the fighting that continued up until now are still only the first stage. Each stage of the campaign was reliant on the success of the previous stage. This makes sense. The first stage was to take the Khalidbar Plateau, which guards the Narrows. They couldn't continue into the Narrows until they eliminated all the threats by the Turkish infantry and guns. Once taken, the fleet could then move through the Sea of Marmara, then eventually they would take Constantinople and remove Turkey from the war. This was the theory of how this was to go down. It was impossible for them to move on to the next stage. The campaign was a loss. A French artillery officer gave his opinion on the situation, saying the following. The whole terrain was scored mined, crisscrossed with traps, barred with skillfully concealed barbed wire, air reconnaissance photographs revealed to us new earthworks, lines of defense, and recently established gun batteries, while we just stayed put where we were. Our infantry dug saps on saps, moving forward bit by bit, the front lines, every day getting closer to the Turkish lines until they were almost touching. As a result, our barrage fire was almost impossible. In all, although we had confidence in our high command, we felt that we were no longer being directed, that there was a total lack of unity, of purpose, and as a result of all this, our expedition was dormant. 2nd Lieutenant Raymond Wheel, 39th Regiment, D'Artillery, 1st Division, CEO. Raymond Wheel might have had confidence in his high command, or maybe he just didn't want to say otherwise. But I wouldn't say the feeling was mutual 
on the British side. At one point, the French government did promise four divisions of reinforcements for a possible Asiatic landing, but they ended up pulling away from this. General Joseph Joffre saw to it that no soldiers will be pulled away from the Western Front to support the Dardanelles campaign until his September offensive was over. And Joffre was no psychic. Even he couldn't say how long this offensive was going to take. In fact, the French government was so displeased with the outcome of the Dardanelles campaign up to this point, they began to shift any involvement outside the Western Front onto the defense of Serbia. Hell, the war has been going on slightly over a year. It started because of Serbia, and I haven't really been talking about them much. And as we know, this war keeps evolving into a bigger shit show. Serbia by now is being attacked by Austro-Hungarian and German troops from their front and sides. Their rear flank will be threatened in September after the Bulgarian army joins the fight. Greece denied entering the war even though they had a treaty obligation with Serbia to help when war broke out. Serbia is desperate, so the British and French will be the ones to dispatch soldiers. France is really looking at Gallipoli saying, what the hell are we doing there? Realizing the initiative had been lost, nothing could be gained, they were the first to begin to pull out. The French 2nd and 10th Divisions were pulled from Gallipoli for good. They would be sent to the new front at Salonika, also known as the Macedonian Front. The French surgeon at Gallipoli, Joseph Vassal, wrote to his wife on October 1, saying the following. It is certain that a French division is leaving the Gallipoli Peninsula. We, the French, will only remain one division here. Four colonial mixed regiments. Naturally, the English will remain here with us. We do not know where the division is going, but we suppose it is Salonika. The hospital ship Charles Rue had already left our coast. It has gone to Salonika. End quote. Europe's fire had spread since 1914, and Salonika seems to be the new hotspot coming up. Field Marshal August von Mackensen, the Prussian commander who took over the German 9th Army in 1914, the guy who wore the Death's Head logo on his furry hat, the guy who already was awarded the Pour le Merit for his successful battles around Warsaw, he launched the German 11th Army and the Austro-Hungarian Balkan Army into an offensive on the 6th of October. The Bulgarians started their offensive on the 15th of October. Von Mackensen will be awarded again in the fall of 1915 by Emperor Franz Joseph himself. The award was unique for foreigners and will contain jewels such as diamonds. August von Mackensen was another one of those hardcore German generals he was no fool. He knew his enemy, and most importantly, he respected their capabilities and even warned his men about how unforgiving the Serbians could be. Even during the Nazi era of Germany, Mackensen would still wear his World War I uniform to events. His death's head always stood out. So, you can see the sense of urgency for the decisions that the French and the British had to make. The Salonika front will rage on through September of 1918, so I'll be discussing it more in future episodes. But back to the Dardanelles. 
Overall morale from the troops in regards to their faith and leadership was at an all-time low. The soldiers were in despair. A British major penciled his thoughts in, saying the following. Generally, it would look now as if things were at a standstill and a deadlock. It will cost us thousands if we were to break through the Turkish trenches, which now envelop us, and it will cost them more considerably, I trust, if they try to break through us. Winter is approaching. The weather at night is getting very cold. We hear no breath of fitting us out for winter, and we shall have terrible sickness if they do not. I have no idea what the future holds forth, what our subsequent movements may be. I can only speak of the narrow front we hold, and one only knows little of what goes on elsewhere. We have had our chance here, and we have missed it. Towering above us is the Sari Bear Ridge, on which we should be safely ensconced and are not. And had we held it, Aki Baba and Krithia must have fallen. I never look up at those rugged heights without a sigh of bitter regret. Major Cecil Allenson, the first of six Gurkha Rifles, 29th Indian Brigade. Allenson was right. They weren't outfitted for a winter war at the Dardanelles. Just because it's hot in the summer along the Ocean Strait doesn't mean it doesn't get cold in the winter. Even the deserts get brutally chilly in wintertime. Winter at the Dardanelles would definitely add to the misery. The men are bogged down in the trenches at this point, pretty much waiting on the higher-ups to make a decision. But this doesn't mean the chaos stopped. Soldiers were still fighting for their lives. On both sides, snipers were still plucking the enemy off one by one. Grenades were still being tossed at each other. Machine guns were spraying day and night, and artillery was still exploding in all directions. The author Peter Hart gives us a sobering reminder that even this late in the campaign, soldiers were still tragically dying. Lieutenant Charles Lister was wounded several times at Hellas and in late August was fighting for his life aboard the hospital ship Gascon. On August 26th, he wrote his father, saying the following, Just think, I have been wounded once more, the third time. We were in a trench observing the Turkish trenches when suddenly they fired some shells into our trenches. I went along to see what had happened, got my people back into a bit of a trench they had to leave, then went down the trench thinking the show was over, and then got it. Struck in the pelvis and my bladder being deranged, and slight injuries in the legs and calves. I had been operated on, but am sketchy as to what has been done. I am on a hospital ship, comfy enough, but feeling the emotion of it a good deal, and I have to be in bed and cannot change my position. The hours go slowly, as one does not feel very much up to reading. However, I got to sleep all right. I feel this will be a longish job, and I don't know where I shall do my cure. Perhaps Alexandria. My doctor is quite happy at the way things are going. The shell that hit me killed one man and wounded others. Forgive this scrawl, it is not easy to write. Lieutenant Charles Lister, Hood Battalion, 1st Naval Brigade, R.N.D. On August 29th, Lister's father received a second letter, this time being from the ship's chaplain, 
telling him Charles had passed away on the 28th. The chaplain had visited him earlier that day, said he seemed tired but fine, didn't mention his pain, then later that day came back and found him unconscious. Charles' time on earth had come to an end. The chaplain took a liking to Charles. They both had a passion for reading. He even brought Lister a copy of Rupert Brooks' poems, whom they both knew. I mentioned Brooks in a previous episode. He died just a couple days before the April 25th landings from a mosquito bite, which caused septicemia. At the end of the letter, the chaplain told Lister's father the following. As I write, we are awaiting for the boat to take his body ashore at Mudros, where the burial will take place tomorrow. He will lie almost within sound of the heavy guns. End quote. Charles Lister remains there today. He's buried at East Mudros Military Cemetery. The chaplain for the burial was the famous author Ernest Raymond, known for several books, one being Tell England, written in 1922, and We the Accused, written in 1935. Ernest Raymond wrote 46 novels, two plays, and 10 nonfiction books during his life. After the war broke out, he applied for a chaplain position. Raymond served on several fronts, Gallipoli, the Western Front, Sinai, Mesopotamia, Persia, and Russia. If you can find an original copy of Tell England, I'd hold on to it. It's not easy to come by these days. All right. There's one thing that Hellas, Suvla, and Anzac have in common at this point in time. Can you guess what that is? Well, let me help. As the British would say, they're all properly fudged. Christmas story reference right there. It's true, though. The Turks held the majority of the ground and, of course, more importantly, the high ground. And they had much more reserves ready to do battle. The original plans that went from the British assaulting onto the beach, then pushing to make gains, then to destroying the Turks, turned into the men really just fighting to stay alive. Really, that's it. They were literally just fighting to live another day. And like I said earlier, this will bring the morale down. A British major wrote the following. This is the dullest war that ever was. So far, none of the triumphs and victories that make wars so wonderful, so dramatic, so splendid. The events I have seen have been but boundlessly sanguinary. What suffering, what misery. What pathetic patience. Mechanism is destroying humanity. It is a pitiful spectacle. Out of the brain of man has sprung this monster that devours his genius. Genius has been engineered out of existence. An aeroplane is a miserable substitute for the mighty imagination of a Napoleon and vastly less efficient. And the reward of great courage is in 99 cases out of 100, death. Major Claude Foster, 9th Worcestershire Regiment, 39th Brigade, 13th Division. This is a great little passage by Claude Foster because in so little words, 
he's saying so much about the new age of warfare. The way I interpret this is he believed the old glories of war, the Napoleon days, are gone. The new industrial revolution with its machines are turning it into hell, taking away what was once idolized. But you have to ask yourself, what's the difference between 100 men dying from a machine gun or bombs in a single day versus 100 men dying from cannons and muskets in a single day? In battle, death is death. What makes one glorified over the other? There's been some battles during the American Civil War that left bodies mutilated and mangled all across the battlefield, much like the First World War. There's many stories told how grotesque the Civil War was. All the Industrial Revolution and the advancements in warfare that came along with it, all it did was even the playing ground in some cases gave the underdog a chance. Going into this, the Turks were not favored. And yes, they did have good leadership. But I promise you, if they didn't have machine guns that the Germans brought, along with battleships and other goodies, this might have been a different story in favor of the British. Claude Foster is basically saying, if this were the old days, we would have stomped them. And that might have been true. But this is a new century with its new weapons, which brought new changes. All right, so the men had endured what most couldn't. From spring through the blistering summer, the dead which were rotting and decomposing still surrounded them. Those who had managed to survive this long, they were getting sick. A medical officer wrote the following. They all look so ill, poor devils, that it required a heart of stone to send the lighter cases, say, of simple diarrhea, back to duty. However, one had to remember the military exigencies, and my heart used to bleed as I watched some poor, diarrhea-stricken, emaciated a skeleton with sunken eyes and unsteady gait, accept without murmur my decision that he must return to duty pick up his kit, and slowly return to the stinking, pestilence-stricken, ill-constructed trenches. Lieutenant Norman King Wilson, 88th Field Ambulance, RAMC. Enduring through this much under such horrible conditions and bad health can cause a man to act, I'll just say, out of the normal. Men were becoming mentally ill along the Western Front already. So it's not shocking that men at Gallipoli were doing the same. Men began to mentally crack, break down. Their body and minds hadn't left the battlefield since day one. Their mental state has boiled over. Some began to take matters into their own hands. An officer wrote the following. A rifle shot went off behind some bushes beside us, followed by howls from someone in agony. A soldier lay on his back with his rifle beside him, his left foot merely held on by his putty. His comrades, I see, are convinced that this was an intentionally inflicted wound. I have never before seen a man shoot off more than a finger or toe. Carrying off a foot shows that the man has plenty of plush of a sort. Captain George Davidson, 
89th Field Ambulance, RAMC. A stunt like that on the Western Front would have gotten you a quick face-to-face -face with a military court in the field, ruling you to be put to death by firing squad immediately. Men were also being shot at Gallipoli, they just didn't have a court. While this is going on in the trenches, something else was brewing back at home for the British. Trade strikes organized by the unions. And some of you might be asking, what does this have to do with the Great War? Well, it has a lot to do with it. The trade strikes actually began back in the autumn of 1914 with failed negotiations between employers and trade unions. In February of 1915, a strike took place. It was called the Engineer Strike. Roughly around 10,000 workers coordinated a strike in response to inflation rates on cost of living and to match the wages of the many Americans who were brought over to fill positions. By summer, things were really getting tense. Labor shortage was a major issue. June of 1915, there was an estimated 48,000 less engineer workers than before the war had broke out. Munition factories were 14,000 short of their required workers. And the soldiers had their own opinions on the matter, showing little sympathy. An officer wrote the following. We are fed up with the shirkers at home. They earn more than a subaltern gets, and they can live in comfort and do their work without risk except of the recognized kind. Here, one has to sweat and carry on no matter what is happening, and the hours of work are anything up to 24 per day. It would do them good to be put in a bunch for 24 hours and be well shelled at a half penny a day with no regular meals, no regular rest, and no roof over their heads, like our Tommies. Lieutenant Charles Cook, Army Service Corps, 29th Division. Another officer wrote, I was awfully sick with the accounts in a speech by Lord George of the way workers are hindering the production of munitions. English people really managed to produce some first-class swine without effort. These obstructors are every bit as bad as the Welsh miners. I hope Lloyd George's pathetic reference to his working class home will have the desired effect. On any topic, especially where there is any question of honor and the like, their ideas are those I should have expected from the average monkey. I had no idea that such low standards existed among the manufacturing and town clerking classes. Captain Arthur Crookedon, HQ 159th Brigade, 53rd Division. Those are uh, some harsh words, but who could blame them for having anything short of anger towards the workers who were supposed to be supplying them? Now, I've talked about the difference between the Western Front and Gallipoli. Both were hell in terms of death. In fact, the Western Front just be because it went on longer and started earlier, naturally, it was probably worse. But one thing that made Gallipoli bad was the rotation. On the Western Front, the men would be rotated off the front lines and put in the rear. There was a rotation system. Gallipoli didn't really have one. If they did get pulled back, it was onto the beach, but they were still in harm's way. They were still stuck on the battlefield. So they mentally and physically never had time to recover. 
Because of this, like I said earlier, men began to crack. They were also becoming violently ill. In fact, it was estimated that in, in the autumn months, half of the soldiers were unfit for duty due to health issues. Another thing breaking down was the artillery guns. Never mind the fact that they were already short of munitions, what good is artillery rounds when the guns themselves are falling apart? The rapid firing non-stop with the dust, dirt, sand, and salt in the air had been taking its toll. And the toll was ringing hard on them. Barrels and springs were failing. They were going down left and right. With the winter months approaching, they would have to secure their dugouts and the trenches. Appropriate clothing would have to be brought in because they weren't outfitted for winter. Beach storage depots and piers would have to be fortified as winter brought angry storms from the sea. And it's because of this that the first rumors of evacuation began at Gallipoli in London. Of course, who was the person most against an evacuation? Sir Ian Hamilton. He began to plead with Kitchener that many men would be lost in the case of an evacuation. In fact, he would lose half his force. Here's a guy who had no problem sending wave after wave of soldiers into suicidal attacks. They've lost thousands upon thousands of men so far. And all of a sudden, he's worried about losing men if they evacuate. Refusing to consider an evacuation will ultimately be Hamilton's downfall. His multiple failures up to now aren't looking good, but this will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. To quickly recap Hamilton's commanding at Gallipoli, from the start he kept promising London quick wins which turned into months of going nowhere, with more and more requests for more men now claiming if he didn't receive more, they would fail. Yet he still refused to consider the evacuation. The new Salonika front, along with the needed troops at the Western Front, has London now raising the eyebrow at the Dardanelles campaign. What has it become? What are they still aiming to gain? Also, what didn't help Hamilton's case in the eyes of the politicians back home was the incompetent General Stopford. Yes, he began a new fight to restore his reputation regarding the disasters at Suvla. You'll have to use your imagination the bad things he was saying about Hamilton. And the politicians were listening. What Stopford was saying was being gathered for Hamilton's future. But there's one person who I believe changed the course of this campaign. A person with some power and friends who made decisions. He didn't carry a sword, he carried a pen. In this case, the pen became mightier. Sir Keith Arthur Murdoch was an Australian political journalist, businessman, and father to Rupert Murdoch, the executive for Fox Corporation, and his net worth is something like $18.5 billion, which is, which is irrelevant to Gallipoli, but just throwing that out there. Well, in September of 1915, Keith Murdoch made a visit to Gallipoli for four days. Upon return with the help of a British war correspondent named Ellis Ashmed Bartlett, he wrote a 25-page report to his friend Andrew Fisher 
the Australian Prime Minister. The report described the organization and conditions at Gallipoli. Murdoch was honest and established that Gallipoli was both a disaster and a place of national sacrifice. In the opening pages, he described it as undoubtedly one of the most terrible chapters in our history. The letter made its way to the British government in September, landing on the lap of British Prime Minister Henry Herbert Ashquith. Ashquith had it printed and circulated out to the committee in charge of the Dardanelles campaign. I'm not going to read what Murdoch wrote. Obviously, it's lengthy, but I recommend you do. You can Google it and it'll come up. As a result of this report being written and circulated out, on October 14th, the committee dismissed Hamilton and replaced him with General Sir Charles Monroe. Clearly, Hamilton wasn't too pleased about this decision. He ended up quitting on the 17th of October, leaving Birdwood temporarily in charge. Hamilton knew a troop withdrawal would go hand in hand with Monroe. Hamilton's refusal to withdraw can be seen as the last bad decision he made, but to be honest, how many other times did he make a good decision during this campaign? His career was done. I will say this though, even if they had a better commander and they were more tactical in their planning, I don't believe they still would have taken the Khalid Bar Plateau and conquered the Dardanelles. It was way too heavily defended by the Turks who knew the grounds. What I'm saying is this. Either way, they were doomed from the start no matter who they had in charge. Well, now Sir Charles Monroe is in charge and he's a whole different character than Hamilton. He had come from the Western Front, meaning he believed this is where the attention should be. The Director of Military Operations, Sir Charles Caldwell, sent Monroe a note saying the following. Ian Hamilton's failure was to my mind to a large extent due to his disinclination to tell Lord Kitchener unpleasant things. I do not suggest that your chief and yourself will adopt the same line, but I would urge on you not to hesitate before telling unpleasant things in your wires to Kay. Especially, I would keep on about the troops being so very short of establishment and the discouragement which this causes them. Remember also the time that it takes to get anything to the peninsula from this country. Major General Sir Charles Caldwell, Director of Military Operations, War Office. Monroe visited Hellas, Anzac, and Suvla all in one day on the 30th of October. He wrote back to Kitchener, saying the following. The positions occupied by our troops presented a military situation unique in history. The mere fringe of the coastline had been secured. The beaches and piers upon which they depended for all requirements and personnel and material were exposed to registered and observed artillery fire. Our entrenchments were dominated almost throughout by the Turks. The possible artillery positions were insufficient and defective. The force, in short, held a line possessing every possible military defect. The position was without depth, the communications were insecure and dependent on the weather. No means existed for the concealment and deployment of fresh troops 
destined for the offensive. Whilst the Turks enjoyed full powers of observation, abundant artillery positions, and they had been given the time to supplement natural advantages which the positions presented by all the devices at the disposal of the field engineer. General Sir Charles Monroe, Headquarters MEF. I've been trying to cover this campaign the best I can from the start, and what really saddens me is I don't think for one second Monroe was exaggerating the situation in his report. How did Hamilton allow the situation to get this bad? And ultimately, the soldiers on the ground are the ones paying the price, along with the hundreds of thousands that have already sacrificed their lives. He followed on in his report to Kitchener, saying the following. Since we could not hope to achieve any purpose by remaining on the peninsula, the appalling cost to the nation involved in consequence of embarking on an overseas expedition with no base available for the rapid of stores, supplies, and personnel made it urgent that we should divert the troops locked up on the peninsula to a more useful theater. Since, therefore, I could see no military advantage in our continued occupation of positions on the peninsula, I telegraphed to your lordship that in my opinion the evacuation of the peninsula should be taken in hand." End quote. Monroe also went on to talk about the diseases, sanitary conditions, along with health conditions the soldiers were living with, along with how the Turks were able to hold a power position over their trenches with minimal troops. They were the superior in number and position. On November 3rd, Monroe made way for Egypt to discuss the impact of an evacuation. But Kitchener was still on the fence about this too. He was worried about the effects it could have on the East. Later in November, Kitchener arrived at Gallipoli to assess this for himself. He made a three-day tour around the peninsula. He was in shock after seeing the conditions firsthand, realizing Monroe was telling the truth. On November 22nd, he telegrammed the War Committee recommending a partial evacuation. Up to this point, this was just an evacuation from the Army. The Navy was still pondering the decision to make a bolt line for the Straits. Kitchener wanted to retain Hellas to support the Royal Navy in future operations. On the 23rd of November, the War Committee accepted the recommendations for an evacuation and also recommended leaving Hellas too. Decisions now laid in the hands of the cabinet. Kitchener made his way back to London. He made Monroe commander-in-chief of all Mediterranean forces outside of Egypt. Birdwood was put in charge of the renamed Dardanelles Army, and General Byron Mahone took command of the Salonika force. At this point, Kitchener and the members of the cabinet were all too afraid to pull the trigger on the evacuation on Gallipoli, fearing the deaths it would cause. Another problem was approaching fast. Winter. And I'm going to end this episode right here. Folks, I haven't had a Great War recommendation for a while now, but I have one for you now. My Great War recommendation is West Front 1918, directed by G.W. Pabst. 
I wonder if it's the same guy who is related to the Paps beer family. Well, this movie was released in 1931. This was Paps' first movie with sound. Set in the final months of the war, a German lieutenant leads his men on a tour of duty in France. I'm not going to say this is the best movie I've seen on the war. I like Wooden Crosses better for, for that time period, but it's not bad. What's interesting is how old the movie is and that a team of, what would you call them, movie restorers? A team of people kept it alive. Being so old, it obviously had to be restored. These people preserved it for us to watch. You know, it's viewing a piece of movie history, and that's really what makes it interesting to me. And again, the storyline isn't bad. I watched it on HBO Max. If you don't have HBO Max, there's other ways to watch it. One way is purchasing a DVD or Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection. And if you go this route, the website says it offers a bonus feature of French veterans reacting to the movie in 1969. Be honest, I'm kind of bummed I didn't see that part, but I'm not going to go buy a DVD when I can stream it through a service that I'm paying for. So that's my movie recommendation. I hope you take the time to watch it. And if you do, let me know what you think. Drop me a comment. And that's about it. Thank you for supporting the show by listening. Wishing you all the best. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.